You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. conversation through the Disney animated canon in chronological order, playing our part in a healthy ecosystem between art, criticism, and fandom, attempting to comb through the tangled ways these movies have shaped us and formed our imaginations. Hopefully along the way we enrich the viewing experience and have some fun too. Today we're climbing the tower of Disney's 50th animated feature, Tangled. It's a princess movie and an action movie. Disney finally figured out how to braid those genres into one. I'm sure we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. It's the first computer-generated princess movie. It's got a special 50th animated feature logo to start the movie. And honestly, I'm not sure that without that logo that this podcast exists. Because prior to that number flashing up there, there wasn't really a way in which these movies were seen as a single collection. Walt Disney had started releasing uh, their VHS movies in the 80s under the classics title, but they never had released all of them at the same time. They famously had the Walt Disney Vault, um, where they had certain movies um, that were locked away and were only released once every seven years. Um, We talked about that way back at the beginning of this podcast. Um, And so those, that particular group of movies were often released under diamond or platinum or signature editions. Um, Starting in 2000 or 2001, the, the Disney princess line was there in which they kind of linked all their princess movies. Um, at least under a single brand. Uh, but this was something else. This was Disney claiming all of their animated features as one collection uh, or a canon, as we call it. Um, they embraced everything the studio had done, the fairy tales, the package films, the experiments, the box office successes, the artistic failures, the glorious heights of Bambi and 101 Dalmatians, all the way to the warty lows of Three Caballeros and The Fox and the Hound and uh, uh Whatever that chicken movie, (laughs) not the chicken, Home on the Range, (laughs) that's what I'm trying to say. Everything was included. And at the time, they released a couple fun uh, count videos that featured clips of every film. And you can still find those on YouTube where it kind of, uh, you know, within a a couple minutes rolls through uh, all 50. So, um, yeah, they really uh, established a canon with that little uh, 50 logo. It was also a bit of a flex in what was quickly becoming a crowded CGI animated crowd. Uh, and we'll probably touch on that as well, as we often do bring up the other studios. Uh, who else knows where else this secret escape tunnel under the Snuggly Duckling will let out? My guide and yours, someone you can call brutal, sick, sadistic, and grotesquely optimistic. But way down deep inside, he's got a dream. It's Michael Farmer. Hi, Josh. 
You know, earlier I was saying that today's a really big day, and you didn't really respond, so I'm just going to tell you, it's my birthday. <laughs> it is your birthday. Hey, happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, how often am I ever going to like ha- have a have a line that perfect for the day we're recording? <laughs> that is amazing. Oh, man. Yeah, happy birthday. Thank you. I'm 40. Yeah, the big 4-0. Yeah, I'm there with you. I'm not, I, I we're still 40. talking about children's cartoons. And yeah. <laughs> well, we've got a, a magic aging flower that keeps us young, I guess. That's true. I, I think after we're done with the children's cartoons, we're going to go through like the works of Duchamp or something. <laughs> you know, we really have to figure that out. I, I was looking on uh, the calendar, uh, just planning ahead. In um, so we we it's always by the end of the year, isn't it? Yeah, it, well, it's the end of, of March, or the next time we're at this point, at your birthday again, uh, we will be talking about um, a movie that's not even released yet, but it will be released by then. It's called uh, Strange World, and that'll be movie number 61 in the canon, <laughs> and then uh, and then we'll have to figure out what we do after that. That, um, that is a strange world. Yeah. I talked about the uh, 50th logo. They they uh, they brought out the 60 uh, for Encanto. Also, I don't know if you've seen Encanto, but I saw it, you, but I don't remember that part. Yeah, at, well, just at the very beginning of Encanto, they they do the same thing with the the uh, Mickey Mouse. That's you know the the redrawn Mickey Mouse from uh, what is that? Steamboat, Steamboat Willie. Yeah, Steamboat Willie, which also is a relatively recent addition. I think that the first time we saw that was on. Uh, was on Chicken Little, maybe, uh, or not? Something Chicken like Little. that. Sorry, sometime, I mean, sometime post Renaissance. Yeah, I think it was Meet the Robinsons. Is what I meant to say. I didn't mean Chicken Little. I meant Meet the Robinsons because uh, I believe that was a John Lasseter innovation. That little that makes uh, sense. Disney that animation. seems like a Lasseter. So, your contention is that they did not have an official list of these movies until Tangled came out. Um, I don't know. I think it's just a bigger deal okay. since then. Because like, I feel like in 2005, 2006, I started making a list of them to buy and that I, I used an official canon list, maybe on Wikipedia, like the one that's there now. But I can't mm-hmm. swear to that. Well, so the two things that I would say to that is, one, even if you were making a list to buy, I don't know that they were all released. No, that's or at true. It's not all released at once. That's true. Prior prior to that. Yeah, they were still and, doing the, that vault nonsense. Yeah, and the uh, the second thing that I would say to that is, I'm sure that there were the hardcore fans who were doing things like that. I think for myself, and I I, I think on that line between casual fan and hardcore fan, I'm you know <laughs> whatever that spectrum is. Right. I have a podcast, so you know I'm somewhere over there. Right. I had never <laughs> even considered, oh, like. I should watch all of them, you know, like until I saw that 50, there was like something that like clicked in my brain, like that, like got to collect them all, you know, like. So I did have that feeling and I had it not because of the animated features, but because of a a line of DVDs that I I think we probably talked about way back at the beginning of this podcast, the Disney, the Walt Disney Treasures DVDs, which are reissues of very old cartoons so going mm-hmm. all the way back to the old alice shorts which i don't know if we've ever talked about um there's some live action things that disney did with a, a little girl in in cartoons in the 20s mm-hmm. yeah. um and so when those came out i said well i gotta get all these and when i made a list of all those i said i should just add all the um all the regular 
all the regular features to this list as well. And at that time, I do remember that they were reissuing them one or two per year because I remember buying the Jungle Book new, for example, and um, Peter Pan, I remember buying on DVD new and the Diamond Edition or Platinum Edition or whatever vault nonsense they had. Obviously, this yeah. was in this was long before anybody ever thought about streaming. Right. Yes. Yeah. This is this is well before streaming, which is crazy because we're only uh, this movie came out in 2010. So it's not like super like deep history, but you're right that it is is long before streaming. Right. Um, Although I, I streamed say, this one. Yeah. And so, yeah. So on this point, also, I will say that I as I was kind of researching this, that the directors themselves were surprised that they were number 50, like when somebody told them, like, hey, you guys are going to be number 50. So I think well, that would certainly suggest they didn't have a they didn't have a good list. Yeah, well, I or at least within the studio, you know, whatever you're working on, like you're not really thinking about like, hey, how many of these have we done? Well, there's a, there's a few that like could have gone either way. Right. So I'm thinking about something like the Reluctant Dragon, which we've never talked about, but which is a. A movie that sometimes used to get counted as a Disney feature, or even something like Mary Poppins or Pete's Dragon, or those other uh, those other movies that blended live action and animation. Right. So, yeah, I think there was an, there was an early one called V is for Victory or something. Right. Right. <laughs> and the we... Reluctant Dragon is like that too. I my I I've seen it. I have it in actually on one of those Walt Disney Treasures DVDs. I got to break those back out because they're really they're really wonderful. Um, but I, 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 I've definitely seen Reluctant Dragon, and I think it's like a tour of the Disney Studio by Robert Benchley of all people, and he um, he meets the Reluctant Dragon, who is a cartoon. I think that's right, but it's been probably 15 years since I've seen that that movie. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. So um, I would like to see that one just because I think the tour through the the studio would be would be interesting, you know. Well, I'll have to check and see if it's available anywhere. And if not, you can come down to Atlanta and we'll watch it together. Oh, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Just set up a set up a microphone and that that's what we can do. We can watch all these uh, <laughs> these Walt Disney Treasures DVDs. I mean, I've got I've got all the Silly Symphonies. I've got all the Goofies. I've got about half of the Donalds and all of the Mickeys. I mean, I've, I really spent probably five hundred, six hundred dollars on these DVDs. And for the most part, I, I feel like they were a pretty good um a pretty good purchase. I, I'm sure I could turn around and sell. I remember I spent $90 on the Goofy one because they, they went fast. These were limited edition, obviously. Right. And um, the Goofy ones went fast because, you know, the Goofy shorts are some of the most wonderful pop culture anybody's ever created. So everybody mm -hmm. loves them. I yeah. bet I could turn around and sell that for 150 200 maybe 300 bucks. I don't know. Yeah. I, haven't, I haven't looked at eBay to see how much they cost anymore. Um, but I, I, I did, I ordered a lot of them. I didn't get most of the, so I, they ha also had a number, and this is so off topic, but whatever. They also had a number of, of ones that were like 1950s Disneyland stuff. And, uh, and obviously that's my real entree into Disney. That's what I really care about is the parks. So th those are mm -hmm. very exciting for me. But, um, I, you know, if, if any of our listeners have, have, find themselves able to access some of those uh, Walt Disney Treasures DVDs. They are cool. And they came out uh, probably four or five years before, um, before Tangled. So it's, it's that era. Um, and I wonder, I wonder if now that I think about it, I wonder if Lassiter had something to do with them because it seems like a very Lassiter project, Lassiterian project. <laughs> yeah, it does. It really does. I wonder how much of that content is available on, uh, Disney Plus. At least some of it. The the, the number of um, 
the number of old shorts that's available on, are, that are available on Disney Plus, it's not as high as I thought it would be. Um, I, I had assumed they were going to put up almost everything except maybe some of the offensive ones. But and and they have put up some. You can you can definitely track down some of your favorites and even some that you wouldn't expect. Uh, but for the most part, they have kept uh, they've kept the shorts off of Disney Plus. And I, I think I'm on record on this show as saying the reason they let them stay up on YouTube because a lot of them were available on YouTube. Maybe they still are. Is that they were planning on making them available on Disney Plus and then they were going to file a copyright thing on YouTube. I, I but uh, apparently they're not going to put them on. Disney Plus, so I, I I don't know. It's a uh, it's disappointing. It would be. I mean, I have access to all of them anyway on DVD, but it would be nice for everybody to be able to enjoy some of those. And I mean, there's some there's some real gems. And of course, there's a, a you know a large number of not particularly inspiring shorts. Right. Well, yeah. Inter- like so, way back. I mean, we've been doing this podcast. I mean, we're you know we're on episode 50 of, of, of the, uh, the proper ones. And then we've, we've done our deuterocanonical ones. Um, and we did the shorts of the shorts of the forties, um, way early on and, uh, shorts of the fifties. And I, I went back to look for one of those recently on Disney plus and it wasn't there. So, um, I did yeah. just look it up though. Josh and reluctant dragon is on there. So, um, if, if you, if you're interested in seeing, Seeing the 1940s studio, that's a good place to that's a good place to go for it. Cool. Yeah. So anyway, I, I think with Disney Plus and, and and you're right, we're way off topic, so we should uh, we should probably move along. But I I think uh, early on I was disappointed in how little they had on there, and over time they've added some of those things that I was disappointed about, you know. Um, and so I I wonder with the shorts if it's just you know it's low priority right now. Um, but... Well, because it's it's mostly guys like us who care about those shorts, right? right. Like they're yeah. not big crowd pleasers, other than maybe the goofy ones. People don't care about them. People haven't seen them, and there's a lot of them. People aren't even aware that they exist beyond maybe they remember seeing Ferdinand the Bull or something when they were when they were kids, and and if they saw it again, they would like it. But but I, I think very few people are clamoring to see um, the Pelican and the Snipe or something like that. Yeah. So, so it may, it, it may get on there, uh, eventually, but we'll see. I wonder how much, uh, you know, probably none <laughs> would be my guess. But my, my question was, uh, like uh, how much the, uh, like the, you know, at the end of, um, most of the Disney movies, there's like a credit for like the Disney archive team. And I wonder how much like influence they have over the Disney plus team, but it's, it's probably zero. Yeah, I would I would imagine the Disney archive people are pretty uh, pretty siloed. Yeah, what a dream job though, man! I'd, I'd love to work for the uh, the Disney archive team. I'm also sad to say that the price on the Walt Disney Treasures DVDs has plummeted, and you can get the complete Goofy for thirty six dollars. Oh, bad investment after all. <laughs> oh, oh well, I I wouldn't sell it anyway. I love those I love yeah. those shorts. Actually, here's one for ten bucks. Yeah. Perfect. Nice. So if anybody's interested in those things, uh, now's the time to get them, I guess. Yeah, there you go. Physical media. Physical media. You know, we talk a lot about streaming, but I still think people should buy physical media because you don't know know what the companies are going to decide they don't want you watching. 
And I, don't, I, I know that makes me sound like some sort of reactionary crank, but I don't even mean it like that. It's just think about how many movies get moved around from streaming service to streaming service. And if you don't have whatever the new one is, Paramount Plus, you'll never get to watch it. Wouldn't it be better just to have it on a DVD, you could, which you can keep in your house and watch whenever you want? That's my feeling. Yeah, I, and I don't disagree with you on that at all. I think I think there is a there, well, and I, I we've we've talked about this before, so uh, no no need to rehash it in depth. But I do think that there's a there's a certain value that comes from having a physical media, like not not even in the um, in the sense that you're talking about. Although I agree with you, I mean more in like a it helps you appreciate it more as a fan or as a connoisseur that you've tracked it down that you've tracked it down that you own it that you you know that you can hold it it just seems less uh ephemeral ephemeral or something you know i agree i agree Um, i so I, i remember when i found out about that walt disney treasures line i feel like this is just an ad for that line maybe they'll um maybe they'll hire me to do advertisements mm-hmm. um when when i when i tr- the first one i ordered was disney rarities which has a bunch of stuff a few things i knew but mostly stuff i'd never heard and i remember getting it i came home from work one day it was when i was living in omaha and i came home at 5 30 or whatever and it had arrived i remember watching them until midnight or one o'clock in the morning and it wasn't um I, w- I was just riveted by it it wasn't it wasn't the way you put something on when you're streaming and then kind of half pay attention because you know i i hadn't realized this thing had existed i tracked it down i paid 25 bucks for it or whatever i paid for the two two dvds and um and then i waited for a long time and th- there's something to that I, and again here here i know i sound like a reactionary crank i know i sound like oh things were better in the old days and in some ways it's great to not have to wonder if you're going to be able to find something uh online but uh at the same time it does make it feel kind of cheap sometimes yeah well on the reactionary crank thing like i think there's one of the it's one of those things where you know there's a uh there's there's this idiom it's probably used around the world but in in china where there's where there's uh railways everywhere you know like you talk about like uh a, a railway line from one place to another uh, you might share a bit of track with another railway line from one place to another, you know, like um, it doesn't mean that you're going to the same destination, but <laughs> that you might share the railway track for a little bit of time. And that's like a, a good thing, you know? And so like, yeah, you might be sharing the track with the reactionary crank, but that doesn't mean you actually are going to the destination of reactionary crank. <laughs> sure. Well, thank you, Josh. It's very nice. <laughs> sharing the track for a little while <laughs> yeah well we should probably actually talk about the movie we're here to talk about rather than uh the disney treasures line and streaming and all that yeah all that stuff so i wanted to i wanted to open with a question for you and i don't mean to spring it on you but i think in in uh one of our past episodes one of our recently past episodes you mentioned that we're kind of seeing a a trio of uh deconstruction uh reconstruction films deconstruction of the disney fantasy uh and you also called these the past participle films yeah (laughs) enchanted Uh, tangled and frozen yeah. Um, and so I was I was wondering if you wanted to start there with what work uh, you feel like this movie is doing on the uh, deconstruction of the fairy tale myth slash reconstruction for a modern time of the fairy tale myth. 
Yeah, it, it is. I, I, I think of this movie as being a, a kind of updated version of Sleeping Beauty. I think it has a great deal in common with Sleeping Beauty, with the exception that now Aurora has as much of a personality as Philip. So, I mean, I, I love Sleeping Beauty. I think um, it's probably still my favorite of these movies. But uh, it is also true that Aurora is kind of a non-entity in it. That's Philip's movie. Uh, by and large, Philip and the Fairies. Um, here you have a strong male lead, the Flynn Rider character, but then also um, Rapunzel herself is an action hero and fully realized and very much has agency on her own. And in fact, the, the action of the movie is her getting her agency. So I, I, th I think there's a very self-conscious update of Sleeping Beauty here. And it, it does it in a way that's kind of third wave feminist where, you know, it's girl power and it, it's kind of irreverent. Um, although it, it makes these turns into some really, I think, sophisticated emotion about Stockholm syndrome and stuff like that. Yeah, I would say um, I would say that there is a real reverence for the past year. And some of that, I think, is, you know, John Lasseter, who, you know, we've already mentioned a couple times on this on, on this episode of the podcast, not to mention our, our previous episodes. But, you know, John Lasseter comes in as a real fan of Disney animation and had worked, uh, you know, well, I, you know, his story is interesting, you know, because he, you know, he started at, at the theme parks, you know, as a yeah. kid or whatever. You he, know, was like, a, he was a conductor on the Jungle Cruise, I believe. Yeah, really fully immersed in, uh, you know, we talk about how Disney shapes our imaginations. Like, he was really fully immersed in it. He was part of that first first class of uh, Cal Arts students. You know, D Cal Disney kind of set up the Cal Arts program in order to train the next generation of animators. Uh, he came in and was working at the studio, was interested in the computer animation side, obviously, uh, and was getting some pushback against that side of things um and so left to help form pixar um where but I, you know he's taking the principles that he loved from classic disney over to pixar that's why i i mean i believe that's why pixar has the tremendous amount of success it has um you know, meanwhile, Disney flounders a little bit uh, and, and he's invited back as as the head of creative leadership or whatever his title was. Um, and so, you know, he's bringing that um, that nostalgia back with him. Uh, but it's more than nostalgia. It really is a reverence. But it's a reverence that is mixed with, as you said, like it's it's kind of a clear eyed reverence, I would say, where uh there, there is that like looking back at, at what was done, but also it's it's paired with like let's push things forward, you know, in in a new direction or or whatever. So um, right. well, it, it seems to me that Disney had been chasing these other studios, particularly DreamWorks, for a little while, and Lasseter came in and said, "You guys have everything you need here. You don't have to look to these other studios and try to copy what they're doing. You have this history." which can serve as the foundation for moving forward. You yeah. don't have to be embarrassed of it. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's where like the 50 comes in, you know, like, like whatever is in there, but some of it is embarrassing, but like embrace it all, you know, <laughs> like, like, like you have it, you know? And as I mentioned, it's a bit of a flex at that point in 2010, DreamWorks had 
an absolutely absurd 21 movies already. They're already up to 21. But, like, they're so, like, they're just churning them out, you know? Right, right. Um, they're all the same movie. And, I mean, yeah. I'm sure if we looked back, we wouldn't even recognize some of them. Yeah. Um, some of the other, you know, uh, studios are, they're they're mostly all in the single, di- and not even single digits. They're in, like, the handful, you know? So Illumination, who's most, uh, most well-known for the Despicable Me line i would say you know they had five in 2010 um uh the the animal logic who eventually would do lego movie they only had two at that time um blue sky who did ice age which was you know fairly like commercial excess you know they only had five at that time so uh pixar's the the closest to what disney's doing and they only had 11 in 2010 you know so like i think there is that sort of like exactly what you're saying like you guys you know, you have 50, <laughs> 50 movies under your belt, you know, even with the absurd, like 21 that, that, uh, DreamWorks has, you still like outnumber everybody else combined, you know? Right. Um, right. With a, with a, a pretty remarkable hit to miss ratio. Right. I mean, by any, by anybody's light, 65, 70% of those are really good. Yeah. And yeah. arguably the number's higher than that. I, I, I just don't think anybody would argue it's lower than about 65 or 70%. Yeah. So, yeah, I think there is that that sort of like uh, reverence for the past that 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 really plays into this. Um, So. Yeah. And I think uh, you mentioned Sleeping Beauty. I think the the they were very intentionally also looking at like Cinderella and Pinocchio, um, at least in like the in the art design of things. the, there's a little bit of interesting history with this movie in that Glenn Keane, who we've talked about on this show mm-hmm. a number of times, he's an excellent, uh, really excellent animator. Um, he animated uh, his other two princesses that he animated were Ariel and Pocahontas. Um, but he's done a lot of other work also. Um, he uh, he was set to direct this movie originally, um, and he ended up having a heart attack. And so uh, he stepped out of the director role, but he still I think he gets an executive producer credit. But um, in the uh, the kind of background behind the scenes stuff that I was watching, the, the animators were talking about how he was still there every day and really like was touching every scene of this movie. And they would bring a scene to him that was computer animated um, and he would draw on top of it like the hand drawn animation um you know using uh styluses and you know it's still computer stuff but like he's hand drawing on top of their scenes to show you know how they can make it better like how the animation can be better and like um he did all the character design for this movie they really wanted it to look like uh a glenn keen film um just rendered in you know the computer animated 3d rather than the the 2d that he draws in so um, I don't remember where I was going with that, except to say that, that, oh, so like they were, you know, they were really wanting it to look classic, uh, even though it was in this newer updated medium. Right. When it's got that, um, it's got that 2010s character design on Rapunzel, certainly, right? Like the, the giant, uh, her eyes are almost literally bigger than her waist. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. But you're right. I mean, it does. Um, it does feel 
in a weird way it does feel 2D even though it's it's obviously 3D. Yeah. Her I'm character careful. design is so amazing. The the personality they get out of her face um especially given how stylized her design I mean the fact that her eyes are half her face or whatever like the the fact that they can convey so much emotion on her on her 3D animated face is is amazing to me. Um, it's it's a it's it's she has as much personality as any Disney heroine we've looked at, just mm-hmm. in terms of the animation. Yeah, and that's I mean the the animators themselves, at least from the the few clips that I watched, you know, all credit that to Glenn Keane. Like they say Makes that sense. they couldn't. They actually said that you know he took like a six month sabbatical after his heart attack, and they could not get her right. Like they had his original drawings, but like they couldn't model her correctly in the computer and he came back after the six months and he was like oh you need to move the eyes here just the pupils to this size like whatever you know and within uh three days <laughs> you know they had uh the the rapunzel that we know now you know um so it really was that you know that level of 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 his touch to to make it work you know and to get that expression they said that he was the reason that um, maximus uh, the horse works as well as he does too. Cause they said, you know, a, a real horse has, uh, its eyes are on the side of its head, um, which makes it making the expression hard. But if you move them too far forward, it looks like a human face on a horse, which doesn't work, you know, but Glenn Keane was the one who was able to like figure out that exact, you know, spot so that, you know, Maximus's expressions could, could come true. Right. Come right. Through the movie, so well, he certainly doesn't act like a horse, does he? <laughs> No, I mean he's an oversized dog. That's that's definitely true. But um, I, I but, couldn't help but think that that character um, owed quite a bit to Prince Philip's horse from Sleeping Beauty. What was that horse's name? I was trying to remember. Uh, I don't. I don't recall. I don't either. But I I, I feel like uh, I feel like Maximus must have must be a distant descendant of of that horse. Yeah, sure. <laughs> they actually. Uh, they, that is true that they um, – what did I see about that? I don't want to misspeak because I, I kind of uh, forgot what I what I saw on this. But I, I believe that they brought in the guy who had worked on uh, Philip's horse um, really? to, to advise on this. Wow, I, he must have been 80 years old. Yeah, but I think they still brought him in just to advise on it. I believe – but I, I could be misspeaking on that. I don't, I don't remember uh, for sure. There was, some, there was some relation to Philip's horse. You're right. Maybe it was just that they looked back and referenced it. That they, maybe they didn't bring the actual guy back. Maybe they just referenced it. Referenced those drawings. So yeah, uh, Glenn, Glenn Keane's the hero of, of this movie, to be sure. And they wanted him to make it in the mid-90s, right? And But they demanded that it be CGI. And the CGI in the mid-90s could obviously not have done a movie like this. It would not have looked the way Glenn Keane wanted it to look. So they sat on it for 15 years. Yeah. And I think actually this this movie probably didn't look fully the way that he wanted. If you've ever seen, um, oh, what is the name of it? Uh, Paper something, Paper something, um, Paper Man. (laughs) Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, I do. That's a great short. It's a Pixar short. Uh, no, it's also Disney. Oh, is it? I believe so. Um, and he also worked on that one. I'm hang on. I'm looking it up. You pa- might Paper to... Man is definitely the name of the short. I know what you're. Uh, I know what you're talking about. That's one of the. That's one of the best shorts of the 2010s. Right. And so, um, 
yeah, Paper Man, he didn't direct it, but he uh, he again worked on it. And I think that is one where it's a, like just a masterful blending of uh, CGI, but with that 2D animation look. I think if they had the technology at the time, this is what uh, Rapunzel would have looked like. Or Tangled, sorry. I, th- I think that was probably what he was working towards. Um, they just weren't quite all the way there at that time. He did the character design for Meg in that one. Gotcha. Yeah. And again, I point out that Glenn Keane, the great hero of 90s and 2000s Disney animation, is the son of Bill Keane, who's responsible for the most treacly, (laughs) ridiculous comic strip of all time, The Family Circus. And here's a fun fact. Then uh, his daughter, Claire Keane, also worked on this movie. Oh, how wonderful. Uh, and um, she still works at Disney, but all the uh, illustrations in the tower, all of Rapunzel's paintings in the oh, tower. I love those. Uh, yeah, she those, those were all Claire Keen. Wow. So, the the Keen family legacy continues, I guess. That's good, that's good to hear. So you mentioned earlier the uh, the dual kind of would you call it a dual protagonist i would yeah i and i think that's why they changed the name from rapunzel yeah i think that's part of it i think uh and i think you mentioned also in the princess and the frog that it's also just kind of a you know a branding demographic thing yeah. that yeah, boys don't boys to go watch a movie it. um as a movie boys could enjoy as much as girls certainly although I, I i've always thought that was nonsensical because i loved little mermaid and i loved beauty and the beast when i was a kid i didn't make any distinction between those two movies and Aladdin. So this idea that boys won't like princess movies, I just I just don't think that's true. Uh, I I definitely agree with you. And I would say that, you know, that sort of common sense approach is what's not going to get you a job in Hollywood, Michael. I know. I know. <laughs> but, but yeah, this movie owes a lot to like Indiana Jones, for example. You yeah. know, like, there's all sorts of swinging over uh, ravines, and I mean, there's like literal like uh, you know grabbing the grabbing the hat under the closing door. Right, uh, right. And also, of course, a lot to the Errol Flynn movies, Adventures, Adventures, uh, Adventures of Robin Hood, and Captain Blood. This, this kind of early talky adventure movies, and, and Flynn mm-hmm. Rider has obviously named himself after Errol Flynn. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't want to be a uh, reductionist because I was I was anti-reductionist in our in our last episode where they reduced all the themes of the of the Disney movies down to uh, true love's kiss. And I, I didn't like that. But I feel like they did hit upon a kind of formula here that they're going to continue using all the way up till today. Um, so I'm going to throw this at you and see, uh, see what you think about it. Let's hear it. So it's a, a spunky and inexperienced heroine encounters a charming and unwilling partner who is needed to solve a personal problem that then also solves a world problem. And I think you see this uh, in Mirabelle uh, needing Bruno. You see it in Raya needing Sisu. I didn't you see, see that it one yet. With, uh, oh, it's a great one. Um, but we'll get to it. Moana. <laughs> uh, yeah, Moana and Maui. Uh, Anna and Kristoff and even uh, Judy Hopps and Nick Wilde in Zootopia. Huh. Yep. There is a there is a formula going on, isn't there? Yeah, and I think it's a versatile enough formula that I mean, those are all very different movies uh, tonally, but I feel like they just but they the, hit the, the formula is invisible until it's not invisible. 
Yeah, and but I think they just hit upon something that really works, though. You know, <laughs> like I mean, those are all like uh, pretty decent, good movies. You know. Well, the other thing you get here that you get in some of the more recent movies, and I'm thinking um, Encanto and also the new Pixar movie Turning Red, is the mother as the villain, which I, I guess goes all the way back to um, Snow White, but I think they went away with it for a, went away from it for a long time. But here you have this mother figure, this woman who calls herself mother and sings a song called Mother Knows Best. You get her as the great villain of the piece. Yeah, I would say it's actually a little I don't disagree with you, but I think it's it's a little more uh, tricky than that because it's not just um, uh, it's not always mothers, but it's like a close betrayal. Right. So like I'm thinking of like Frozen, they kind of hide the villain from you and Frozen um i mean there's there's hints that i I forget what his name is um hans prince hans yeah the evil prince you know like there's some hints that he's he's going to be the bad guy but i feel like it's it's more uh shaded than it is here you know um i know you haven't seen raya yet but that's the thing in raya um that's from what I remember of Zootopia, that's kind of the thing in Zootopia. It is the thing in Zootopia, yeah. Yeah, and so um, even Moana, to a certain extent, uh, there's not really a villain as much in Moana, but the fact that, uh, spoilers if you haven't seen Moana, <laughs> but the fact that the, the evil island is actually the, the good island too, right? right. Um, that's that's kind of a uh, an iteration on it to a certain extent. But yeah, but, you get this um, thing. You get this thing where the institution that is supposed to protect you, the family or the police, the police department or the kingdom or whatever, the institution that's supposed to protect you is actually um, a threat to you instead. And as I say that out loud, I wonder if that's true to the old fairy tales or if that's a, a pretty drastic break from the fairy tale setup. So much of which seems to be about trying to get home again. Right. Yeah, well, you know, you think about like Hansel and Gretel. Hansel and Gretel are essentially, not essentially, they are literally abandoned, abandoned by their parents, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I mean, maybe, maybe it is true to the, the spirit of the thing. Yeah, I don't know. I can't quite put, put my finger on that one either. And I, I feel like this is one of those topics that where you almost need like a PhD in it to even be able to talk about it. Like you'd have to really do a deep study of, of the different, you know, fairy tales and stuff. But like. I don't there's something definitely in the movies at least that feels different. Like it really feels like uh like yes, Cinderella's stepmother is the bad guy. But like and a and a stepmother, you know, to to whatever extent should be the one like looking after you and taking care of you, right? Once she becomes part of the family. But she's an interloper and it's clear she's an interloper. It's no right. it's not a secret from the main character that yes. she's evil. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to get at, you know, is like it's not a secret. And so I wonder um and I think even in the original Rapunzel fairy tale she's 12 years old I think when she's kidnapped in the original one. Oh, see what I well, and it's it's hard to say what's original, quote right. unquote, yes. original with these. The version that I'm familiar with um, is a version where the it's it's a little bit more like a, a Rumpelstiltskin type thing, where the the um, the husband uh, needs to steal Rapunzel out of the witch's garden 
in like the the Rapunzel the food out of the witch's garden in order to satisfy his pregnant wife. But yes. in order to do that, the witch says, uh, "Then you need to give me your first your firstborn child." Yes, that's um, true. And so then, uh, you know, and and then you know, those you know those old fairy tales they don't really delve into the inner lives you know it's kind of what you mentioned before like you know like what's aurora's inner life like we don't really get it you know um so like yeah how does rapunzel feel about you know whatever the witch in those old fairy tales i don't i don't know that you're that that's that's the important part of the story right you're so they're so archetypal right that you it, it would be it would be like asking what the feelings of a comet are or or something you know yeah and I don't know that you're supposed to identify with that character. I mean, I, in that old fairy tale, like, who are you supposed to identify with? Like, the lesson you're supposed to learn, I feel like, would be as much as, I mean... The yeah, lesson so, always, ultimately, is evil is defeated. Like, that, I mean, that, that seems that seems pretty clear. But you didn't identify when you were a kid. You didn't pretend to be whoever it was in the fairy tale. Probably not Rapunzel, since I don't imagine you had really long hair and you were a boy. But like don't don't you feel like don't you feel like children place themselves in those stories yes i do i don't know if they i don't know which position the early hearers like i'm talking about like you know the people who are reading grim like when grim's first published right like uh like where what position are they placing themselves in in the story you know like are they placing themselves in a point maybe you've got to right like when you when you hear a story like that, if you're not picturing yourself as the hero of the story, what are you doing? Yeah, but is Rapunzel the hero in that story? It's who the would you prince. Say that, is the prince? Yeah, right. The prince is the one who comes and rescues her. Yeah, but a, a girl is probably not going to put herself in the position of the prince. She's probably going to put herself in the position of Rapunzel, and the boy is going to put himself in the position of the prince. Don't you think? Yeah, I, that that does make sense to me. Yes, I just in the 18th I'm, century or whenever people are hearing these fairy tales before Grimm collects them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, when you're, when you're telling these, it seems like so many of these stories, like, <laughs> you know, and I, again, I haven't made a study of this. Yeah, me so, I would, I would just, really like to get a good book of fairy tales and read them. Yeah. Cause I feel like I haven't spent enough time with them to talk about them the way we talk about them on the show. Like we knew something. Right. <laughs> I want to, I totally agree with you. Um, I, I've been intending to do that since we started the show and I just have not gone around to it. But like, I, I do feel like there's an element of like, uh, like the, the, the parents or the elders or whoever are telling the story are almost like instilling a fear in the child. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, I, I think that's like, exactly yeah, right. I think don't go into the woods, you know, do you, do you not I, remember? I mean, maybe you didn't feel this way, but I felt this way. I was terrified of wolves when mm. I was a kid. And it was from reading fairy tales. There hasn't been a wolf in the state of Georgia in 300 <laughs> years. I'm sure. Like they just don't, they don't live around here. That's a European phenomenon. It's a middle ages, European phenomenon. But yeah, I mean, they it scared the absolute hell out of me. And I'm sure that's, I'm sure that's what they were supposed to do. They're supposed to teach you how to deal with a world that is dangerous. Don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. Which is when people complain about Disney battlerizing the fairy tales, I think that's where they have a point is that the, the, the Disney ones, a lot of them, there isn't as much of the element of, of terror, which is another reason um, 
Sleeping Beauty is so wonderful because you have this villain who is elemental evil, right? Like she is, she is just evil from top to bottom and she's out in the world and it will take incredible courage to defeat her, but yet she can be defeated only after she summons all the forces of hell on her side. Like I, I, I think that that's one of the movies that really gets that fairy tale terror, right? Mm hmm. What we should be doing, Josh, after we run out of Disney movies, is reading through some of those fairy tales. That would be a lot of fun. That would be a lot of fun. I'm for it. But yeah, I, I, I you know, I hadn't read Rapunzel in a long time, and I, I went and looked at some versions of it, and um, because what, what I was interested in. So I, I'm vaguely uncomfortable with this movie, which I, I loved. I thought it was terrific. It's one of the best ones we've watched since the Renaissance, to be sure. Like, like it's as it's as good as Beauty and the Beast. It's as good as The Lion King or, or Little Mermaid. But um, as with Little Mermaid, I found the, the kind of your parents want, want to abuse you message kind of mm, dangerous. Do you know what I mean? I, I think so, but say say some more. So if I were a kid and I were watching this movie, and of course I was 28 years old when it came out, so I never saw it as a kid. Um, I would not, I think, be able to abstract from, what's her name? Mother Gother, Gothel. Gothel, yeah, Mother Gothel. Um, mother, I wouldn't be able to abstract from her being the kidnapper and fake mother of Rapunzel from like my real parents because i think when a kid watches this and they see mother gothel trying to keep her life within boundaries and saying it's for her own good they're going to hear those same sorts of things from their parents from whom it really it really is for their own good and they really are healthy boundaries and they're going to what they're going to take away from the movie is those sorts of boundaries are bad and they're not letting me express my true self. So I was very interested. I went I wanted to go back and look at um, look at the the earlier versions of the story and see if that that really is like how it went. And it kind of is like I, I don't think I don't think Disney's making a radical break from it other than to add some psychological realism about Stockholm syndrome. Mm -hmm. um, but I. I think you told me your kids love this movie, right? Yes. Yeah. Does, they like it. Does, does that make you nervous? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I will tell you the, the things that make me cringe the hardest when I'm watching this movie is, uh, there's a couple times that they do it. It's the, I love you. I love you more. I love you most. Which is the thing. Lots of parents and lots of kids say to each other, right? Yes. And it just, Oh, I, I don't like it at all. And then the, the um the the mother knows best song and then the reprise of the mother's knows best song both of those end with mother gothel holding out her hands for a hug and rapunzel running into that hug right you know and um but, but the thing is for 80 percent of people 85 percent of people mother really does know best yes no absolutely yes I, and that's that's the point i i'm making as far as like why those are cringeworthy right. movie, moments right. Because you wonder what your kids are taking away from that. Yes. And we actually, we have talked about it, <laughs> you know, like in the, you know, we've, we've said like, okay, do you guys understand, you know, that mother Gothel is, is really evil here, but yeah, it is tricky. It's a tricky to navigate because it's like, well, what makes her, 
the bad guy, um, you know, or what differentiates her as the bad guy, you know, um, she's obviously provided, um, a tremendous, you know, life for Rapunzel, you know, like much better than like, say, uh, you know, I think our nearest parallel from what we've seen is like, um, uh, oh, what's his name and Quasimodo. Um, yeah. Um, what is his name? It's not Frollo, is it? No. Yeah, and maybe. I don't know. I don't remember. The, the Archbishop. Matter. Yes, yeah, yeah. The bad guy in, in, in Hunchback. You know, like, he's he's provided the uh, <laughs> the uh, the clock tower and nothing, you know? like um, Or not the clock tower, but the bell tower. You know, Rapunzel's uh, tower is amazing <laughs> and comfortable and lovely and she gets her paints that are three days journeys away and makes her favorite soups and like you know like there's there's a real sense of home to it um other than the fact and this is a big fact but you know what i mean other than the fact that she can't ever leave and that she's like been she's, kidnapped it's not just that she can't leave right it's that she can't leave not for her own benefit which is why you don't let your kids do whatever they want. Right. Yeah. But yeah. because her mother is vampirically feeding off of her, her, her yeah. quote unquote mother, excuse me. It's not even her real mother. Yes. And I think that vampirically is such a good word for this, you know, like it's, there's, there's actually a moment in the mother Gothel song that, uh, you know, she, she says, I, uh, something about protecting you or loving you or taking care of you or something. And she is snuggling, not Rapunzel, but Rapunzel's hair. Yeah. That, isn't that interesting? You know? And so like, I, I think there are those subtle clues, um, if you will, that, you know, mother Gothel is not telling the truth here, but then there's an element of, you know, Rapunzel isn't locked in a prison cell in a, in a drab, like what you consider a prison cell, you know, like it's all it's a gilded a, cage, as they say. It's a gilded cage. Wonderful. Wonderfully put. Yeah. It's exactly the kind of cage so that Rapunzel would believe that it's for her good and not for Mother Gothel's good. You know, that's hard. That's hard to navigate with children. Well, sure. And then there's the other part, which is there are parents who are genuinely like this, right? There, there are abusive parents who who talk about love as a way of controlling their children and you don't want to ignore that either because there are children who should not um believe that their parents have their best interest in mind it's just that's not the majority of children and i don't know that a child watching this movie really has a way to sort through the difference yeah so the psychological realism in the way mother Grothel treats Rapunzel is incredibly well done. It, it like it's it's not that it's a hatchet job. It's that it's so well done that I'm not sure a non-adult could really sort it out. Mhm. Yeah. And yeah, and that's exactly my uh that when when Frozen first came out, that was my wife's big problem with Frozen was it's it's a similar thing with Hans and it's even more subtle with Hans. It's like, how could a kid figure this out? You know, right. well, like they, how... the movies really do increasingly seem like they're made for parents instead of kids, which in some ways is good, right? Cause movies that are just made for kids are, are usually pretty bad. Yeah. But, but there, there, there comes a, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what to, and I don't have children. So I feel like I don't have a, I don't have a, a stake in this as much. Um, I, and I, I feel like I don't have 
firsthand observation to decide whether what I'm saying is true. Because I'm speaking about the child abstractly or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I... I remember I saw this in the theater in 2010. I remember thinking it then like, Oh, if I were a little girl who had trouble with her mother, this movie would really change the way I saw, I thought about her and probably not in a great way. Yeah. Probably not for the better. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, that is interesting. (laughs) It is, it is one of the, I, yeah, I think there is, there is an element of like that's childhood is like Mm -hmm. you, there's a lot of confusing things. And you're you're left to kind of sort it out, and your parents are doing your best, their best, hopefully, hopefully your parents are doing your be- their best to help you sort it out. But parents are also constantly failing at that. But you know, like there's there's some way in like that's just the world, <laughs> you know. But then uh, that doesn't excuse it, you know. Like that doesn't excuse a million dollar you know, hundreds of millions of dollar company, you know, from promoting it. <laughs> and right. so, that, yeah, that line does feel a little creepy. I will say um, that for my family, and this is not justifying anything, I'm not trying to make justify myself as a parent. Um, uh, the thing that my, I think that why my kids like this movie so much really came from the cartoon that followed it. Oh, uh, interesting. Which is much less to do you know, with that relationship or anything like it's a whole different adventure series. And so it's more the spinoff that like makes them enjoy this movie than, than the other way around. So, yeah. I mean, my kids, I mean, when we watch this movie, like they, you know, uh, they laugh at, you know, Maximus and Pascal and, uh, you know, all the, all the things that you'd expect, you know, like, um, and it is hard to say, like, how much of the, the Mother Gothel stuff they're taking in. Right, right, which makes it even more scary, right? Like, you, yeah. you, you, you don't you know don't exactly know. what they're right. processing. Yeah, yeah, it'll all come out when they're when they're in their 20s, and and uh, we'll, we'll get into some big fight. And I'm, the, more, I'm more worried about it coming out when they're 13. <laughs> well, that's, a, that's, oh man, that's only two years away from my oldest, so yeah, I'll let you know. <laughs> she tells you you're not her real dad. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the other thing is her real parents never say a word in this movie. Yeah, they're silent. And the scene with them at the end is unbelievably powerful. Like, mm-hmm. like it's really, really powerful. But again, that means that you do not have the voice of a parent in this movie. All you mm-hmm. have is this fake parent who is the person who says, hey, you have these boundaries. You shouldn't cross them. It's for your own good. Turns out to be lying. And all you get from her real parents is this moment of total acceptance. And then you never see them again. Yep. That's a, good, that's a very good point. I, again, not not a, not a parent. Like I, I don't know. I, I don't know whereof I speak directly, but that would be my concern watching it if I were a parent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's real. It's a real concern. <laughs> I still showed it to him for whatever reason. Who knows what possessed me to do it? But I, I did. <laughs> that's a great movie. Like it's really, really good. It is. Yeah, it is. It's, it's it's very well done. And it's, you know, you compared it to some of the others and said, you know, like, it's like, you know, among those those great ones. And I do feel like there's like a weird line that's hard to draw um, some weird distinction. But I find it very difficult to compare uh, newer movies to older movies. You know, yeah, I can see that. there's just something about like pacing modern storytelling the the way that things are edited and and created where it's like it's it's 
yeah, it's just, and I don't know when exactly it happened, you know, but like, I mean, the closest, like the thing that I think uh, puts it in sharpest contrast is if you watch like uh, the original Star Wars and then you watch The Force Awakens immediately afterwards. Like The Force Awakens is obviously. It's the same movie in some ways, right? It's the same movie. Like it's a reimagining not even a reimagining it's like a retelling like beat for beat of that original star wars movie but the the feel the tone of those two movies is so different you know like it's 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 a really i don't i don't have a vocabulary to talk about it i'm sure that some film critic does you know and i would say that that's also true with like a movie like this and beauty and the beast like i think there's some real parallels between this movie and beauty and the beast um you know like the the resurrection scene at the end is almost beat for beat the same right, right. <laughs> uh but this movie just feels is so different in a way that it's hard to even compare them you know like like what's it even mean to say like this movie is better than or worse than beauty and the beast you know like they're both really good movies, but they're both really good in a very different way. Well, and I think the the music bears that out too, right? So the the music in Beauty and the Beast sounds timeless, in a way that the music in this movie does not. This this the music from this movie sounds like a pop song from the 21st century. Mm-hmm. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. Like the music from this is really really good. I'm not I'm not putting it down, but it you're right that it feels more of its moment than. Um, than Beauty and the Beast did. But then Beauty and the Beast felt more of its moment than Sleeping Beauty did, right? Yeah. You are you are kind wonder, of speeding up as you go through. Yeah. And I wonder if that's, you know, some of that is, you know, when you how old you are when you see it. Um or or what, you know, like it's it's hard to say cuz it's Alan Menken on both of them. You know, like Alan Menken made the movie, I mean, made the music for Tangled and for Beauty and the Beast. So what's to say like Beauty and the Beast is more timeless? Uh, right. I, but, I mean, I, but they they sound they sound radically different. They do. I agree. Yeah. The Beauty and the Beast is just much more of a Broadway influenced um, soundtrack than Tangled is. Yeah. Tang- Tangled I, feels more like a rock soundtrack. Yeah. Other than the Mother Gothel song, I feel like sounds very Broadway to me. But, that's true, yeah. But I'm not a Broadway connoisseur, so maybe that's 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 completely speaking out of ignorance. But there's just something about that one that feels very. I don't know. What do you, let's let's talk about the Mother Gothel song for a minute, since we're kind of on that theme anyway of that that mother knows best. Like just musically, there's something about that song, and I can't place it. I don't know if you can. I'm like, this sounds like something else to me but i don't know what it sounds like it definitely has that um that mid-90s villain song feel to it it's it's of a piece with something like be prepared mm-hmm. yeah. but yeah I, I i don't know what you're thinking of beyond that yeah i don't know either maybe that's all it is or maybe it's just that i've seen this movie so many times that like it sounds familiar to itself you know um but yeah, there's something about that song in particular. Um, yeah, other music in this movie. Since we're on music, yeah, uh, the uh, the love song near mm-hmm. the end. Uh, what's it called? I see the light. Mm-hmm. The, the song about about new spiritual vision. I think that's a, a very lovely duet up there with uh, with uh, 
A Whole New World. I was going to say Part of Your World, but that's a different song. <laughs> when Will My Life Begin, the opening the opening track where Rapunzel is talking. I mean, what teenager hasn't felt like that, right? Like, mm-hmm. what, she's 17 going on 18, and I promise you, if I go... I, if I go to my high school tomorrow and ask uh, ask the seniors if they feel like their life hasn't started yet, I guarantee you all of them will say yes. Of course, they're going to continue feeling that way through college and probably through their mid twenties. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's it's a very um, it's a very universal feeling, and uh, at least at least in our day, uh, I don't know that people in the in the eighteenth century or whenever this is supposed to be said, I don't know that they really would have felt that way. Um, but certainly, um, but but certainly today, I think people understand it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the thing that there's a <laughs> this is so dumb, but this thing that bothers me about the song is that she does all this stuff, and then she says by then it's like seven fifteen, and I'm like, how do you get all that done in fifteen minutes? <laughs> well, look, if you sweep and polish the floor every day, you don't have to do it for very long. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> I wondered why. Um, Not a very big area. <laughs> I, I wondered why Mother Gothel didn't bring her some new books. I get that she has to be careful about the sort of information she feeds her, but surely there's more than three books she could give her, keep her a little happier. <laughs> yeah, I think about these things all the time. I'm like, one of those books much, must mention a birthday in it. And then <laughs> little Rapunzel asked, like, what's a birthday? And Mother Gothel had to tell her, you know? <laughs> Victoria said, why did Mother Gothel not change her birthday? <laughs> yeah. Which is a very good question. The, the whole the whole movie would have been different if Mother Gothel had just said, "Oh, actually, your birthday is November 5th. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, you're right, but it's it's great. I I really like it. I like how it works out. There, there's those sorts of things where you're like, you just can't. You can't no, yeah, yeah, that's always it. a that's always a problem. I one thing I like about that opening sequence in particular is that um, it allows her to be creative and she's kind of forced to be creative the way children have to be creative because they're bored, mm-hmm. you know, and I just so she ends up being this great artist and, and the art ends up being the key to her figuring out who she really is. And I really thought that was um, I really thought that was a nice detail. And again, it's it's to set her apart from Aurora, who's only interest seems to be marrying the person she had the dream about mm-hmm. but it also does pull rapunzel further away from the fairy tale milieu it makes her a, a kind of modern woman which you know there's there's advantages and disadvantages to that yeah i'm not complaining i liked it i liked it too yeah it's really good i wonder though there is a little bit of like uh you know in the uh, i'm thinking of like um uh like pride and prejudice right uh-huh. like because this is this is my only touch point for like that era of women <laughs> like what do i know you know i've read pride and prejudice so like in pride and prejudice there's like woman womanly arts that you're supposed to uh-huh. like yeah. to, to have mastered right um and i wonder like uh you know so rapunzel like the things that she's good at are uh painting and um a baking reading sewing yeah it's, it's stuff uh, sewing, that women are supposed to be good at. uh candle making uh, the candle making is my favorite <laughs> she's just got a gazillion candles surrounding her but yeah it's it's she there's there is a there is an interesting tension there which i didn't think about until just now um of like uh she's yeah she is that girl power woman but she's also extremely domestic yeah that's true 
But I mean, what else would you have her do? Shoot a gun? Her her mother Gothel's not going to let her have one. I'm trying to think right. of other th- fencing. No, actually, yeah. So like in the inter- that's interesting because like so her weapon is is a is a frying pan. They right? get a lot of uh, they get a lot of uh, mileage out of the frying pan. Yeah, and it's great. It's so it great. Is great. Yeah, I, I really like it. But um, uh, I guess in one of the earlier drafts, she was supposed to be really great with a crossbow. It's <laughs> like why, you know? <laughs> but um, but yeah, yeah, like, yeah, it seems it seems unlikely that Mother Gothel would give her anything she could use against her. Right. Although, and I I know this is skipping all the way to the end of the movie. Like her real power actually is uh, she could remove the power at any time. You know, like she could cut her hair at any time, and then, you know, that's it. Yeah, but, the power is not the hair. The power is like herself, right? Yeah. Because because her her tears bring. Rider back to life. Yeah. Although or are you saying are you saying her real power is that the the mother needs her? Well, mother needs. Yeah, that's more what I was thinking. Was like mother needs her, and once that once she's cut her hair, the power's gone. Mother Gothel, you know, even if Mother Gothel continued to live and didn't like trip out the window while turning into dust or whatever because she's five hundred years old, like even if that magically didn't happen like she also can't use rapunzel anymore at that point right like the only thing that rapunzel offers her is gone you know like she's she's just eliminated it from the from the picture yeah yeah that makes sense but like she hasn't she hasn't ever realized that because you know until until the end it's I'm I'm just trying to nuance what I'm saying. Like, it's not like Rapunzel is like, oh, how can I get out of this tower? Oh, you know, like one option is just cut my hair off. Like, she doesn't know that Mother Gothel's using her hair like in that way, you know. So like, um, I'm not. She also doesn't know that Mother Gothel is someone to be feared and hated, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not saying she should have cut her hair at some point. I'm not saying that's like a plot hole. I'm just saying that like, um, Mother Gothel not giving her a weapon in some ways, like <laughs> any sharp object in the tower would be a weapon. It's really the, it's the knowledge that's the weapon, you know, it's not any, any sort of uh you know, a crossbow or spear or sword or frying pan or anything that is a danger to mother Gothel. It's really the, you know, once, once Rapunzel is self-aware of her situation, that's when, that's when the danger happens for mother Gothel, which you see in the way that she responds once Rapunzel figures out that she's the lost princess. Yeah. That she has to go full villainous mode because like there's, there's no more pretending that she's the sweet loving mother at that point. Rapunzel has the weapon at that point. Yeah. Once she has, once she, once it dawns on her, who she really is. Yeah. Um, I didn't mean to skip us all the way to the end. We were talking about music. Um, we didn't talk about I've Got a Dream, which I think is... The, yeah, which is a, 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 one of the great scenes from the movie, right? One of the great scenes and one of the great songs of the of the canon. I just, I really like it. It's so catchy, and it's, uh, like, the wordplay is really, really wonderful. It reminds me a lot of uh, the Gaston song, uh-huh. um, prob- partly probably just because of its setting, you know? Right, it takes place in that tavern. Yeah. I guess the backstory on that is that... Um, the uh, the directors came up upon this fact that a lot of uh, biker bars will actually have like biker poetry nights, <laughs> um, and they just thought that was really funny, um, and so uh, that was part of the inspiration for this whole thing. I love it. 
But yeah. And I just love how like all their dreams are so or what would you call them? <laughs> um, ridiculous. Ridiculous. <laughs> and then you've got Flynn who's just like, you know, I just want to be on an island alone surrounded by piles of money. And the guy tells him, your dream sucks. <laughs> <laughs> stinks. Your dream stinks. It's a kid's movie. Right, yeah. They're not going to say sucks. Not just yet. Yeah, not just yet. So. But, I mean, certainly in that scene, you've got the kind of frantic quality you were talking about earlier, right? How fast this movie moves. Mm-hmm. Even compared to something like Gaston. I would It would be interesting to look at the number of cuts per minute in that song versus Gaston. I bet it's twice as many. Oh, yeah. If not more. Ten times as many. And in a certain have you, way... Have you like, seen... I, I don't know if, I, if, you've, if I've told... I may have mentioned this on the podcast before, and I know I'm using Star Wars again, but there is a, uh, there's a great video essay where they put side by side um, the, the, the training scene in Empire Strikes Back where Luke is learning to... Uh, like he's trying to raise the, um, the X-Wing out of the swamp uh, next to Ant-Man when Ant-Man first is putting on the the headset and is trying to like get the ants to move the piles of sugar. And the, the one, the empire strikes back scene is I, is I, I'm, I'm making the numbers up cause I don't remember exactly, but I want to say it's like seven minutes long that you get Luke trying and failing and giving up and then Yoda doing it and like showing him that it's possible. And it's the exact same beats in Ant-Man and it's like 17 seconds. Wow. Like, it's all those same beats of like trying, failing, giving up, being shown as possible. And it's, it's like under a minute, you know, like under 30 seconds. Like it's, it's super fast. And that's just like the way our movies have changed, you know? So like when you say like twice as many cuts, like I bet it's, it's probably, you know, 20 times as many cuts. Yeah. in just 20 years too. Like, I was thinking the difference between this movie and Snow White. Like, think about how slow-moving Snow White is. Mm-hmm. And how little happens in Snow White. Like, this is a much more sophisticated movie in the sense that it has ten times the plot Snow White does. Mm-hmm. But Snow White requires a level of attention, maybe, that this movie doesn't. Uh, do your kids like Snow White? Uh, the, It's not one that we watch frequently. I, do. I would have to... Honestly, I don't know if they even remember it. I think we probably watched it uh, around the time we started this podcast. So probably my older ones remember it, but my younger ones, I bet, I bet they, they don't even remember seeing it. It's just so slow that I, I would think if you were used to something like Tangled, that would that would be very boring. I mean, right. it's not my favorite either, frankly. If you're used to Beauty and the Beast, it's it's very slow. Very right. slow. Yeah. And there was a time, and, or like up to very recently, like up until like last year, where we wouldn't even show our mov- our kids the newer movies like that because they were just too intense for them. Uh Like even if it's a kid's movie, like I remember the first time our kids saw the Lego movie, like they couldn't handle it. Like it was just too intense um, because they were used to like Robin Hood and Sword in the Stone and Aristocats and stuff, you know, like that, that was the level of movie they were watching. And, and Allison and I were intentional and and fine and, and having fun with that. But there is kind of a shock to go from one of those to the more modern movies. And now, you know, now like, you know, the, the, the favorite movies in my house right now are, uh, 
the trio of Moano or Moano. Moano <laughs> is the male version, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Moana and Kanto and, and Ryan the Last Dragon are the ones that we watch, you know, probably more than anything else. Interesting. Recently. I, I need to watch Ryan. I haven't seen it. I didn't I didn't love Encanto, but we'll get to that in January or whenever. Yeah. So So yeah, like they're they're over that now. Like they've made the adjustment. It'd be interesting to try and push them back. You know, the other day I was thinking, man, I really want to watch uh, Robin Hood again, but I don't, I don't know. Like, if they would watch it, at first they would be bored. Oh man, imagine being bored with Robin Hood. I mean, I hope they're not. I'm just saying, like, it is different, right? right. Like, it is, it is. Well, a very I mean, yeah, it's like, like you said, pacing. But it, it's not. I mean, that's not an art movie, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. not Woman in the Dunes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah so all right what else do we want to say about uh oh you know i have another thing to say on music this movie is the exemplar of the montage they do the they do the montage scene and it's not a pop song it's just you know like uh the Oh, like the soundtrack, you know, uh, it's not even what's it called? The score. Uh, it's just this, a, a, a wonderful song from the score. It's upbeat. It's that it's that dance rhythm. And, you know, the time passes throughout the day and you see all the stuff that that she does in the in the in the village. You know, it's her first time in the village and it's it's perfect. Yeah, like, so I, that's I, a wonderful, love, wonderful scene. I love the mon- montage and I feel like uh, in a lot of in a lot of movies that we've seen and a lot of animated movies that would have been a pop song and it wasn't. And I was so thankful that it's just this like, uh, you know, folksy, uh, dance, dance tune. <laughs> you know, it's perfect. <laughs> and so when I complain about the pop song montages, uh, this is what I'm comparing it to. This is, this was perfect. Um, and they figure out something to do with her hair. I imagine it was a real pain in the butt to, um, storyboard all that hair figure out what it was doing every single frame Mm -hmm. i'm sure it wasn't a whole lot of fun to have to animate all the flowers in her hair when they fix it but at the very least you've got a fifth as much hair yeah well and i think so there's there's a couple interesting things on this too like so uh one is like glenn Keane was really adamant like the the hair almost has to be a character like she has to be interacting with it all the time um, because otherwise it's it's useless. So um, I haven't I haven't gone back and rewatched the movie since I saw uh, the clips of them talking about that. But apparently um, she's always like holding it or running her fingers through it or something um, in order to you know make it kind of exist in the world with her and not just be this thing dragging behind her. But also the uh, the simulation, the computer simulation to make the hair work was something that you know they literally hired a phd in simulating hair (laughs) in order to get it get it to work and like the math is super you know advanced and crazy did did you say um, somebody has a phd in simulating hair yeah her name is lisa something i forget her name um off the top of my head but yes like she has a some sort of computer phd degree in that because it is it is that advanced and like they really pushed uh, push the technology of the time. Um, the hair does look good. Yeah. I guess so, hair is the new water, huh? 
Yeah, hair is the new water. And the water so. and the water in this movie looks amazing. But by this time they have they've totally mastered water. Right. So, what did you think of her Mandy Moore circa two thousand three haircut? Uh, when she cuts her hair off, she looks just like Mandy Moore did in the mid two thousands. <laughs> yeah, I feel like every girl we went to college with had that haircut. <laughs> yeah, kind of perfect. <laughs> yeah, worked. It worked. She loses that immediately in the uh, the Tangled uh, series that follows. By Does the way, she go back. To, I wondered if if the merchandise has her with long blonde hair. Yeah, she. Uh, it's like the very you know, it's like ten minutes into the first episode that that some some magic happens that that causes all of her hair to come back and she can't she can't get rid of it. She wants to get rid of it because you know it's a big deal that her hair has all come back. Um, she she's trying to hide it and she can't. And then the rest of the series, as far as I know, she has. I apparent. I mean, she must if the you know the sequel the not sequel but they made a short after this movie of the wedding. Um, and so if the wedding is still canon, then at some point she must get her, her dark hair back. But I didn't finish the series. My, my kids and my wife did, I guess I, I should have asked them before I got on the podcast if they resolve that within the TV show. But oh, well. for, for most all of the series, she's the classic Rapunzel that you would imagine. Yeah. It'd be weird to have a Rapunzel character that didn't have long hair. It's kind of her thing. Yeah, definitely. I wondered how she could hold up that much hair with that thin of a neck. <laughs> you know you know what i mean like her hair must weigh 75 pounds i think uh i think they said uh it's like 10 and a half or something is how much hair that that much hair would weigh which seems low to me i i would yeah. i would guess more of 70 like you said but... still she must like she must need it's a definitely... terrible massage at the end of every day right and she moves fast with it too yeah well, she's young that's true oh, yeah. she's, she's only 17. 18 17 yeah 18 <laughs> also a cartoon character i guess yeah with the power of youth <laughs> maybe every time she sings a song she gets rejuvenated as well yeah that's true first, first she live disney... forever yeah i don't know first disney princess with a superpower i'm thinking to see if that's true i suppose i suppose you're right i don't know who else would have one and none of the princes had one either, right? Unless you count Love's, love's tr- True Kiss. Yeah. The power of love, I like to call it. <laughs> you don't need no credit cards. Um, yeah. Pretty funny scene when, uh, when Flynn is coming back and is saying, uh, is there any chance that I'm going to have superpowers in my hand now that you've healed it? <laughs> yeah. He's already superhumanly good looking. Yeah. <laughs> He's a funny character. I, I really liked uh, Flynn. Yeah. He, like, he was well really done. Funny. What's the guy's Zachary Levi? Is that the, the actor's mm-hmm. name? I believe so, yeah. From Chuck? I, I don't know that, but yeah. He's very funny. He's also, really? I believe, one of Thor's friends in Thor. Oh, really? I miss that. That often happens to me, though. I don't, I don't recognize actors from like one movie to another. Oh, <laughs> I get, well, also, I get, it's, a, I get, it's get, fairly brief. Yeah, I get caught up in the moment, and I'm just like, I don't. Yeah, sometimes it, it'll stand out, but a lot of times I'll, I'll totally miss that. There's a weird parallel 
while we're talking about him being like really funny, there's a there is a weird parallel between the beginning of this movie and the beginning of Megamind. Did you ever see Megamind? I didn't. Um, Megamind is one of the rare DreamWorks movies that I would that I would say is actually pretty good. Like it's pretty funny. Um, but the beginning of it is so similar in the narration style, even to the point of the first thing that Eugene says is uh or flynn rider whatever you want to call him uh is um this is a story about the day i died or whatever you know and the opening lines in megamind are uh i didn't think this day could get any worse uh and he says a couple bad things that happened to him and then uh you see him falling uh, across the screen he says and now i'm falling to my death so i guess it could get worse or something like that like it starts that same way you know like it's really like weird like that these two studios that are you know rivals put out this like same sort of like opening like fake out you know the narrator has died uh within the first 30 seconds of the movie uh in a very comedic way you know, and like within a week of each other, I think Make a Mind came out like a week before this movie. That's so strange. It's like a Newton and Leibniz inventing calculus at the same time. Yeah, it's exactly you know, only like much smaller and more mundane. <laughs> it's exactly like that. <laughs> Not as impressive. Yeah. I mean, and those are very different movies. Like, uh, you know, Make a Mind is. is uh, is is basically riffing off comic books in the way that this one's riffing off of fairy tales, but like, um, yeah, so it's very different movies, but just a, a very weirdly, weirdly strange parallel opening. Huh. I'll have to watch Megamind. I hope it's good. I I haven't seen it in years, but I I remember really enjoying it at the time that I watched it. So. All right, Michael, I have, I have one more kind of semi-deep question for you and then just a couple notes I want to hit. Okay, <laughs> let's do it. Out here. Okay, uh, can you explain the importance of the mirror in this movie to me? I feel like there are a lot of shots with there's like Rapunzel and Gothel are looking in the mirror. Rapunzel's looking in the mirror uh, when she first captures Flynn. There's a little mirror inside her paint box. The mirror shatters at the end. Flynn uses the mirror to, uh, to cut the hair. What's, what's it mean? It's a movie about her not knowing who she is. And then the breakthrough romantic song is all about spiritual vision. So it makes sense that there'd be a lot of mirrors for her to kind of figure out who she is. Now, also, it's a callback to Snow White, right? Instead of the magic mirror, you have all these mundane mirrors. Mm -hmm. That's the best I got. Yeah. Say a little bit more about like figuring out who you are with a mirror. Well, you see yourself, right? So you see yourself in this mirror for 17 years, but you have no idea that you're actually the princess. Mm. And it's interesting there's one in the paint box because it's the paints that finally tell her who she really is, right? That somehow she has painted something true about herself in these murals without even realizing that's what she's done. Mm. Because she's included the, the emblem of the kingdom without even realizing that's what she was doing. Yeah, her subconscious has like picked that picked that out somehow. So all these mirrors, you know, I now I don't know what to make of the one breaking. 
but um, it, it makes sense to me there would be a motif of mirrors in the movie because so much of this is is Rapunzel learning to come to terms with herself as opposed to being this projection of Mother Gothel. Mm. That's pretty good, Michael. Thank you. Off the, off, off the top of my head. Yeah, totally. I just sprang that on you. I noticed that they were there, but I couldn't make sense of it. I was like, it's got to mean something. There's got to be a reason that they do all these shots of her in reflection. You know, I mean, she puts on the crown as well in the mirror. Um, yeah, there's just there's just a lot of them. It's like there's got to be a reason, but I I can't think like what the what the why <laughs> is this a metaphor for something or what I don't know. That was that was pretty good. That was a pretty good answer. Thank you. So what are your what are your silly questions? Um, oh, it's not really silly questions. Just kind of the uh, a, a couple more things I wanted to say about this movie. Um, so there's a Ghostbusters moment in this movie. Um, the fa- in Ghostbusters. Uh, when they get kicked out of the Academy, <laughs> um, Dan Aykroyd and Bill, Bill Murray are talking to Bill Murray says, call it fate, call it karma, call it what you will. And, uh, uh, Rapunzel says, uh, to, to Flynn, I don't know what you brought you here, you know, call it fate, call it, uh, she doesn't say karma. She calls it, call it fate, call it destiny. And then Flynn says a horse, but I thought they've got to be referencing Ghostbusters. <laughs> Go to it. Um, the continuing influence of Mary Blair on even the modern Disney movies. Yes. So uh, they really they looked at the visual, uh, the visual makeup of Cinderella and Legend of Sleepy Hollow, which are both movies that like she had a tremendous amount of influence on the the shapes and the looks of those movies, and they were really trying to re like capture that like the the curves and things. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we haven't talked about Mary Blair in a long time, but like her, her influence is still being felt. I was a little sad that in the, the, the clip I saw about the, the guy who did the visual, uh, what's it called? The, the environments, uh, is what, you know, his, his title is didn't, didn't name Mary Blair by name, even though he was referencing some of her, obviously referencing her work there may be other people who are responsible for those early environments also so maybe that's part of why he didn't didn't pull out a name in particular but i feel like she was just it's just uh cool to see that that influence continue Hmm. um let's see i think that may be it do you have anything else I don't think so. Just overall, I, I really liked this movie more than I expected to, because mostly what I remembered was my kind of my kind of philosophical discomfort with it. But right. It's, I mean, it's it's a very difficult movie to deny. You know what I mean? Yes. Now I have not seen our next movie, which is the 2011 Winnie the Pooh. Neither have I. I thought that it was really interesting that this movie's credits ends with, or like the beginning of the credits starts with a uh, uh, Winnie the Pooh, Hundred Acre Woods esque map yes. of the world of Rapunzel. I thought that was really interesting. I wonder if they were pushing forward. Yeah, it seems like they were. Um, yeah, but I've also not seen it. It's the very last, as far as we know. I hope that it's not, but it is the last, as far as we know, uh, 2D hand-drawn animation uh, film that the studio put out. So, um, 
yeah, I'm looking looking forward to seeing it. Yeah, me too. Number fifty one. Um, so yeah, it's interesting, you know, kind of, kind of coming full circle. When I, when I saw that fifty, it made me want to you know go completionist and and watch all the all the movies up to number fifty. Um, but I haven't watched all the movies going forward from fifty. So even though we only have uh, you know. 10 or 11, <laughs> 11 more, uh, you know, currently 11 more to do. They'll keep making them for the rest of history, I'm sure. But um, uh, out of those 11, I, I haven't seen, uh, I haven't seen this, this one, the, 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 the Winnie the Pooh. I haven't seen the, the sequel to Wreck-It Ralph, and I haven't seen the sequel to Frozen. So, so that, yeah, there's, there's a few coming out that I still haven't seen yet either. So that's kind of fun. Let's see what I haven't seen. I haven't seen Winnie the Pooh. I haven't seen Big Hero 6. I haven't seen Ralph Breaks the Internet, Frozen 2, or Raya and the Last Dragon. So okay. about half of them for me. Yeah, we're, well, yeah, we're, we're pretty pretty similar in the ones that we haven't seen. So, yeah. I have seen Big Hero 6. I'm, I'm trying to talk Danny Anderson to coming in uh, coming on for us on that one, if you want to. <laughs> I'll, I'll lean on him. You know, he you hates hate. Disney. I know he does, but uh, it's it's based on a Marvel property, so you know, it's kind of if if we're ever going to get him, it would have to be on that one. <laughs> I'll lean on him. I'll see. I'll see if we can get him. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, yeah, this is a fun movie. It's good. It was good talking to you about it. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. We're on the old interwebs at beforetheywere.live and christianhumanist.org. Please help us continue this conversation by reaching out to us at beforetheywerelive at gmail.com. We also want to encourage you to set your podcast player's dials to the Christian Humanist Radio Network. We'll find an abundance of new and old shows to keep you going. Michael and I know there are a great number of podcasts out there you could be spending your time on. So thank you for spending the time with us. So for Michael Farmer, I'm Joshua Altman-Chofer. Go live your dreams.